Benjamin Franklin Butler was a doe-face's doe-face. A successful lawyer and Democratic leader from the mill town of Lowell, Massachusetts, Butler made his political career before the Civil War as an advocate for Lowell's burgeoning industrial working class and nationally as a defender of the interests of Southern slaveowners. In 1860, Butler endorsed Secretary of State Jefferson Davis for the presidency at the Democratic Convention after Stephen Douglas proved too divisive. He ran for governor of Massachusetts on John Breckinridge's Southern Democratic ticket, receiving fewer than 6,000 votes. <laughs> but being a northerner, when the war began, he angled his way into a political appointment as a general of militia. Butler proved an ineffective military commander, but he made a national reputation for himself as the military governor of occupied New Orleans. In New Orleans, Butler's patience with the demands of slave owners finally ran out. Faced with a hostile white population, Butler instituted harsh rule, confiscating cotton and personal luxuries from local planters, ordering the high society women of the city to respect Union troops on penalty of imprisonment, and executing a rabble-rouser who tore down an American flag and trampled on it. Butler was removed from his post after causing outrage throughout the South that even made its way to the European diplomatic courts, but his stern treatment of rebels earned him a new constituency of radical Republicans. His shift into the Republican orbit was accelerated by his interaction with refugee former slaves in Louisiana and Virginia, where he was one of the first Union generals to organize blacks who fled plantations for Union positions into work battalions and military units. He commanded black troops in the field, and by the end of the war was one of the foremost advocates for black suffrage and the extension of black rights. After the war, he went on to become a radical Republican congressman who sponsored bills to protect civil rights of former slaves, advocated for the confiscation and redistribution of plantation land, and eventually became governor of Massachusetts and a presidential candidate for the Greenback Party, which advocated for labor rights, massive government spending, and debt relief. In 1864, former Secretary of State Simon Cameron approached Butler with a proposal. The Republican Party, struggling with a dismal military picture, sought to re-elect Abraham Lincoln on the broadest possible popular basis. Lincoln would not run on the Republican ticket, but on a new National Union ticket, and his running mate would be someone prominent in pre-war Democratic Party circles. Cameron asked Butler, a former stalwart of the Northern Democracy, if he would join Lincoln's ticket. Butler, still an active general in the field at this point, bristled at the prospect of sitting uselessly in Washington for four years, undertaking a job which, at that point, was not associated with advancement to the highest office. According to Butler's autobiography, his answer to Cameron was, Please say to Mr. Lincoln that while I appreciate with the fullest sensibilities his act of friendship and the high compliment he pays me, I must decline. Tell him that I say laughingly that with the prospects of a campaign before me, I would not quit the field to be vice president, even with himself as president, unless he would give me bond insurities in full sum of his four-year salary that within three months after his inauguration, he would die unresigned. So, chastened, Cameron left Butler, and the Lincoln administration went on to look for another loyal Democrat to balance the ticket. Hi, and welcome to Hell of Presidents, Episode 6, The Handsome Generals. Andrew Johnson is stinking drunk. 
It's March 4th, 1865, and it's Abraham Lincoln's inauguration for his second term as president. Johnson had to be led into the Senate chamber, supported by former Veep Hannibal Hamlin, and gave a rambling 17-minute speech when he was expected to talk for only seven minutes. After his swearing-in, he loudly proclaimed, I kiss this book in the face of my nation, the United States. And then he leaned forward and gave the Bible he was sworn in on a little kiss. He was too drunk to swear in any of the senators that day, so the Senate clerk did it for him. Lincoln, who was present, commanded the marshal, do not let Johnson speak outside. (laughs) Put this guy to bed. Get him a cup of coffee. Senator Chandler commented, The vice president-elect was too drunk to perform his duties and disgraced himself and the Senate by making a drunken, foolish speech. I was never so mortified in my life. Had I been able to find a hole, I would have dropped through it and out of sight. And six weeks later, Lincoln would be dead and Johnson would be president. South Carolina diarist Mary Chestnut wrote at the time, We sit and wait until the drunken tailor who rules the USA issues a proclamation, and defines our anomalous position. We sketched out Andrew Johnson's bio on the last episode, and by just outlining his life and career, one can kind of come away with a picture of Johnson as a competent and honorable politician for his self-made electoral successes and loyalty to the Union, at odds with him as a blubbering drunk at his own inauguration. But we must start this episode examining Johnson's many faults. Namely, he was a massive prick with a huge chip on his shoulder. Matt, can you give us this picture of Johnson as president and how he emerges as an early avatar for two of the most powerful forces in American politics, resentment and aggrievement? Now, you heard what Mary Chestnut there said at the top. She said (laughs) this drunken tailor. And Mary Chestnut was, of course, a uh, Civil War diarist and uh, high society Diane of uh, South Carolina culture. And... When she saw Andrew Johnson ascend to the presidency, all she could think of is that he was just a fucking peasant. And the signal fact of uh, Andrew Johnson's political life was that he was driven by the knowledge that he had that people like Mary Chestnut considered that him to be nothing more than that. He he was very much of a, a Nixonian figure in that he was completely fueled by this sense of his own inferiority compared to the uh, swells of white society in the South, uh, because that position, the position of the, of the uh, upwardly mobile lower class in America, especially in the American South, which most attempted to impose European concepts of, of uh, gentry related to like landowning uh, of any part of the country, uh, as you make your way up the ladder, all you're really doing is collecting slights and grievances, collecting the uh, condescension of your social betters. And this position, uh, this resentment-fueled uh, politics, I think goes a long way to explaining what a disastrously terrible president he was and how his instincts for the moment were exactly the opposite of what we needed in a, that position at that moment in time, it's like the Janus face of America was like in the court in the course of flipping. And we got all of the worst horrible uh, recrudescences of uh, our accumulated way of life embodied in one guy. 
uh, because Johnson was the avatar of the small white American under slavery caught between uh, the superior white elite that he'd never be able to join uh, and a black slave caste. And uh, his position is resentment of both, uh, a fear of uh, the blacks and a hatred of the blacks formed by a, uh, an awareness of one's closeness to them socially that they are the only thing that stands between uh, uh, the poor, the poor white and uh, total uh, social sub, uh, <clears throat> subjugation. Because remember, this uh, the American political uh, identity requires uh, the the black uh, the branded black labor uh, uh, in order to to exist. And absent that, uh, you'd be there. And so there is fear and hatred. Uh, of blacks and then envy and resentment of the whites and it really does show that there uh that Cal- john c calhoun's fantasy that that uh race solidarity would uh totally erase class distinctions was wrong guys like johnson were proof of the opposite of that uh in a country where sac- self-actualization depends on, on autonomy and control of one's life uh that that precarious position of smaller whites is actually uh, an engine of political alienation, but because there's no solidarity here, because this is totally pro- selfish, uh, it becomes a policy of pure uh, a, a personal aggrievement because it insists on denying any kind of uh, solidarity beyond one's self-interest. Even Johnson's many times proclaimed love of the the, the southern white plebeians, the small poor farmers that he said he was working for. It was just a reflection of his self-love. And that meant that Johnson, after a career of feeling every slight and barb of the planter elite in Tennessee politics, and then amongst the Republican fancy lads in D.C., was thrust into a situation where he could return all of his resentments into policy. And we go from, in a tragic heartbeat, a a snap of the fingers, we go from uh, a president in Lincoln who is going through a soul-enlargening trial by fire over the course of the Civil War and, and, and having his mind and, and perspective on like, the, the country he was commanding and the, and the project that he was attempting to foresee change along the way, replaced by someone dominated by a, a self-fixated compulsive petulance. And that is the... Uh, that's the pot we find ourselves in with Andrew Johnson becoming president there. But beyond Johnson's personal or personality dysfunctions, it was the issue he put his stranglehold on, Reconstruction, that would create a new set of contradictions for this era. And as the reforming parties marshaled constituencies to grapple with it, they settled into a predictable pattern. This is the era of the handsome generals. The Republican Party would continue to put up increasingly aging generals to represent their legacy of victory in the war, countered invariably by Democrats straight out of the New York Tammany machine. Reconstruction was, in many ways, a constant relitigation of the Civil War through the ballot box and through cultural wars of the day. And in the meantime, other titanic shifts in policy of the day are driven by the unstoppable thrum of capital— Huge new concentrations of northern capital built up through the war sought investment and protection. It found the unfettered expansion to the west and the subsequent continued obliteration of the native populations there, as well as the rise to political dominance of corporations. 
But it's 1865, and Andrew Johnson finds himself wildly, shockingly, probably still hungoverly, sitting at the head of the federal government at the moment of a world historic hinge point. So let's see how this plays out, Matt. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath for anything good. (laughs) Johnson is suddenly now in charge of the monumental task of knitting the nation back together, reestablishing governments in the formerly rebelling states, defining a new social order for the entire country and sanctifying the half million lives that were lost in the war. The Tasks of Reconstruction. And though he was initially praised for committing to follow Lincoln's intentions for Reconstruction faithfully, his personal objectives and arrays of power would soon veer this course, especially since Congress was not scheduled to return to session until December 1865, resulting in an era of presidential Reconstruction, where Johnson personally ran the program. Matt, can you elaborate a little on the stakes and conditions of this time? So... I say 1865, the, the war is over, the, the, the Confederate military is, and governments are disbanding and authority is being reasserted by the federal government, but the, that entire chunk of the country has now uh, been totally annihilated. Its, its economy has completely collapsed, its infrastructure has been torn up, uh, its political leadership has been completely dispossessed and uh, left in a limbo, a, a legal gray zone between their status as former rebels against American authority and now uh, subjects of that authority. The, they, the, there was still an open question at the uh, end of the war as to what political rights would be allowed these uh, Confederates, both the people who led the from the top and even people who served in the, in the Confederate cause. Uh, would they be allowed back into full citizenship or would there be a period of, uh, of federal direct rule while new uh, political structures are, and social structures are being created. So we've got a dispossessed elite in limbo waiting to see what would happen and whether they would try to, how they would try to resist it, because obviously none of them were happy about this new deal and were looking to get uh, overturn as much of its results as possible. Meanwhile, in the North, the Republican Party is now the uh, dominant political force throughout the entire uh, country that has political representation in congress uh it is the natural party basically of every state north of the mason dixon uh a million men had marched under the banner of the republican party's uh sectional uh anti-slavery sort of quasi-federalist whiggish political project and as and were blooded in that conflict and and so they were uh pretty much unopposed in the north they were making connections to the uh, existing power structures of Eastern finance, which many of which had been pro-Democrat uh, even during the war, uh, and also the emerging fortunes made by those who had made money during the huge economic boom in the North during the Civil War caused by uh, the change in the money supply. So when the war began, uh, Congress uh, and the president essentially had to build an army out of nothing. And that took a lot of money. And, of course, the supply of money could not be left to the question of how much gold was in the, in the government <laughs> treasury. And so for the first time, the United States, as a war F measure, printed a fiat currency uh, from the federal treasury, the greenback, as it was known. Uh, and with these uh, greenbacks, uh, the federal government 
paid a bunch of people to supply that army with uh, guns and uniforms and food and logistics, uh, and they borrowed against their war effort, basically, with uh, bonds backed by by this new uh, economic system. Uh, and that had the effect of, by the end of the war, creating huge new concentrations of capital, uh, which meant a even more powerful uh, burgeoning industrial sector uh, and a political party that they were now sort of in natural alliance with. But within that party, that Republican party, you have uh, those who seek more than anything to make their own way in the, uh, politically and also to advance the interests of Northern capital and those who want to see the war pursued to its end, the death of slavery and as some sort of social revolution uh, in the South commensurate to the sacrifice of the war. Uh, and that was the presiding feeling of many of the grassroots uh, Republican party, the people who actually fought and died and had and sacrificed and new people who had fought and died and sacrificed in the war. And they provided the electoral base for uh, the drive towards reconstruction as a liberatory project and not just as a attempt to uh, internally dominate a colony, or some would have called it. Uh, and that conflict plays out over the, the, the ne- these next years. And, and then, of course, you have the Northern Democratic Party, which is uh, essentially at this point just all of the drunk pissed off Irish people of New York <laughs> uh, just stewing there, just still mad about getting shot at the, during the draft riots uh, and, and just sending every single Democratic uh, presidential candidate for the next three years. Uh, in the South, you had, of course, uh, most importantly, most crucially, you have a population of millions of recently freed, recently enslaved people who have now been removed from uh, regimes of private economic domination and are being integrated into this market, but without any accumulated uh, real or social capital or land, because, of course, the whole point of uh, their condition was that it was predicated on all of their surplus being expropriated at gunpoint. Uh, And now, without any of that uh, accumulated capital, with that still in the hands, according to uh, the legalities of the day, to the people who had rebelled against the government uh they were held in this position this this gray zone themselves between slavery and a yet unspecified level of social integration and so the question of how they would be integrated into this social order came down not so much to the planters who were a pretty small percentage of the population but to the poorer Mm -hmm. whites uh broadly divided into those poorer whites who lived in the hilly up countries of the appalachians who had been largely pro-union during the war, had uh, tried to evade military service, and in some cases actually fought guerrilla wars against the Confederate uh, forces, wanted to see their participation and uh, power in government finally reflect their numbers, because before the Civil War, the southern states were very brutally gerrymandered to make the uh, slave-owning plantation counties the seats of political influence and now uh these people who had mostly supported the union uh wanted to see uh things change to give them a greater stake uh and then finally you have the larger population of low country uh poorer whites who served as the cannon fodder of the confederate army who suffered the most for the cause and were now uh in a situation of collapsing commodities prices and uh, uh, destroyed 
infrastructure of agriculture and also who had literally just been shot at by northerners uh <laughs> and were desperately terrified of putting being put on social ba- uh social equality a, so- a basis of social equality with former slaves because of the fear that they would then of course uh, have the same social position as sla- as the former slaves and so these forces are all these are the 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 interests at stake here throughout the region and now the question will be come down to how will the dominant party here the republican party now controlling uh, uh even in the face of johnson the machinery of, of power how would it uh arrange the uh interests in the south in such a way to create a coalition of authority that could rebuild a, like a civic infrastructure in the south that could be acceptable to a sufficient number of white people to avoid uh the resumption of hostilities to to allow for the development of economic growth so that money could be made and the question of how to balance all of these how to balance the uh the demands for equality of the former slaves echoed by those who fought on their behalf in the north uh the demands of uh the um the land starved uh southern white yeomanry who were very very poor uh, and uh hard pressed compared to their northern uh counterparts and then the old planter aristocracy uh, and uh, the arrangement of those forces by uh, the government uh, is going to end up being the uh, what Reconstruction comes down to. And of course, again, we are talking about a time where all of this is basically just on the desk of Andrew Johnson and up to him in the critical period. And one of Johnson's chief motivations here was his own re-election. He had hoped to become the first president who had taken over his predecessor's term to achieve re-election in his own right. Uh, But he found himself, as we had just (laughs) said, in a tricky spot. He was a lifelong Southern Democrat who had sided with the North during the war, allied with a Republican administration that had ran away from the Republican brand and ran as the National Union Party to be elected. Uh, With the parties again in flux, Johnson felt he could create a new independent base against the radical Republicans and began trying to form a new party of the most conservative elements of both Democrats and Republicans around him. This project would eventually fail, but it helps explain his work to undermine Reconstruction. So Johnson is in essentially the exact same position as John Tyler, uh, the heir to a presidency that he had no uh, stake in whose political project was not his political project uh, and who therefore felt no uh, sense of power in the White House because it wasn't a house that had been designed for him. And so, like John Tyler, his immediate thought is, how am I going to get a term in my own right so that I could actually govern? Uh, and so, like Tyler, Johnson went looking uh, to form a new coalition among the Democrats as uh, using the Democrats as his popular base. Uh, he figured that even though there was still mass disenfranchisement of former Confederates in the South and they wouldn't be able to supply necessarily that many electoral votes, that he could get the mass of the Northern Democratic voters and, and those Republicans who looked at the uh, prospect of Reconstruction and saw a dangerous threat of a social revolution and wanted to see it stanched. And he figured that with that, coalition that he could maybe get his own 
third party going just like Tyler. He actually had a uh, he had a convention, uh, and he tried to bring together Democrats, but also Republicans. But it kind of uh, failed to work because very few Republicans were willing to sign on because they wanted their fight to mean something, and they had their own resentments, namely of the people who've been just fucking shooting at them. <laughs> there was a very, there was a very strong well. There's a very strong degree to which the northern will to seek reconstruction pursued and to see black rights defended is, in fact, powered by spite, powered by a desire to fuck over the people who shot your brother. Uh, but that was a real potent political uh, element at the time, and it undermined Johnson's efforts because most Republicans were not really ready to hear "let's bygones be bygones," which is what Johnson proposed. So initially, Johnson took actions in Reconstruction that won approval of the radical Republicans. He overturned an armistice made by General Sherman that would have recognized some Confederate state governments. And he even offered an $100,000 bounty on the capture of Jefferson Davis. Bounty law. But this would quickly change. Supporting his views that seceding states had never really left the Union and that suffrage was and is a state's rights issue... Johnson wanted to quickly reinstitute Southern state governments and leave the matters of voting rights for newly freed slaves up to them. He moved quickly to stand down federal forces and recognize state governments largely as they had been constituted during the war. Johnson, always a supporter of the plebeians, as he called them, the workers and laborers over the elite planters, uh, did hope to reconstitute the South to give powers to this class, even if blacks remained on the lowest rung. Can't do it. But even here he failed, as appointed governors called conventions that reestablished state governments filled with secessionist elites who Johnson declined to prosecute after the war. In many locations, the only real difference was the adoption of the 13th Amendment banning slavery. He also moved to demobilize soldiers and disempower the Freedmen's Bureau, which had been set up in March just before he took office. The Bureau was established to provide material relief and state protections to blacks in the South, but also provided some services to whites. And perhaps most disastrously, Johnson curtailed the nascent land redistribution that was taking hold in the early months of peace. Matt, the possibility of land distribution. Land redistribution during the war began as a military expedient. Some Union commanders, most notably uh, Sherman during his Carolina campaign, were dealt with the issue of having to provide uh, for refugee former slaves who flooded their lines as the Union Army approached their uh, locations by supplying them with land and implements for self-sustenance so that they wouldn't be required to draw from the rations of the troops. So the vast majority of former slaves at the end of the war expected and in fact demanded that restitution for their unjust exploitation, which had been vindicated by the Union Army's victory in the war, come in the form of control over the land that they had developed with their sweat and blood. So Thaddeus Stevens and radical Republicans like him agreed with the slaves on this, and they grasped that there could be no real black equity of the kind uh, that the war's effort uh, demanded absent the same access to the concept of landed self-sufficiency that whites enjoyed in the North. Now, it might be a social fiction, as we've been talking about, but it's a social fiction that uh, facilitates the, commu- the creation of social bonds. And it would be it, the only way to integrate blacks into that mechanism is if they could also have access to notions of, uh, of yeoman freedom. It's free real estate. And that meant land distribution. And also, crucially, that redistributing all planter land to not only former slaves, but also to poor whites, 
would be the way to secure poor white acceptance for a black equality that would be socially destabilizing and dangerous and upset white supremacy there, but would also give uh, the opportunity for raised economic conditions. This was one vision for securing Reconstruction, aligning the interests of poor whites and formerly enslaved black Southerners by dispossessing the planter class and redistributing their land. And then that political coalition could realistically, even in the face of white supremacy, which of course would still be a huge influence in politics, but that alignment of interests coordinated with the Republican Party could theoretically have uh, planted deeper roots for black equality in the South. But the, it's important to remember that, of course, Andrew Johnson was horrified by any of this and wanted to stop it at, at uh, all costs. But even the bulk of the Republican Party at this point, at the leadership levels anyway, is much more interested in maintaining the sanctity of private property so that it could be the bulwark of this new post-war economic order that they thought that they were finally imposing on the nation. And Andrew Johnson, who is in the president's chair, above all wanted to prevent any kind of social revolution that a landed black population could have instigated. To this end, he removed military commanders who were noted for their sympathetic intervention on behalf of former slaves. He refused to consider any extension of land distribution and even used federal troops to evict blacks from the land they'd been awarded or claimed during the war. This, more than any other element of Johnson's Reconstruction policy, was responsible for limiting the aperture for black equality in that period because, as the course of Reconstruction would show, nothing served to guarantee black political and civic power more than the economic autonomy of black land ownership. And of course, the ultimate irony for Johnson is that he claimed to be doing his reconstruction policy on behalf of the poor, small Southern white plebeian. But in order to maintain his uh, racial superiority to the former slaves, uh, he paid for it. And the poor white yeomanry of the South paid for it by being proletarianized and hyper-exploited in the late 19th century and turned from an independent yeomanry into a subject proletariat. Uh, and that is because Johnson instead chose to pursue a political alignment between his own interests, the interests of finance and the interests of the Southern planter class. And when the Southern planter class was re enshrined in power, what do you know? They dispossessed everybody. <laughs> they didn't give a shit about race. Ah, damn. Who could have seen that? coming and even johnson mr mr homestead uh no passion for uh, land redistribution where it already exists got to protect that property yep so in eight months johnson completely reversed expectations from a hardliner willing to fulfill lincoln's will to basically a full-on collaborator with Southern interests, squandering the most critical period of Reconstruction on appeasing white elite planters. Upon Congress's return in December 1865, conflicts pretty much instantly took hold. Congress immediately passed an extension on the Freedmen's Bureau, which Johnson vetoed. Next, Congress passed a Civil Rights Act, which, among other things, guaranteed birthright citizenship. Johnson vetoed that, but Congress overrode his veto. This affected a final break between Johnson and even moderate Republicans who Johnson hoped would come to heel if he was able to overcome the radicals. Congress soon again passed the Freedmen's Bureau bill and this time overrid Johnson's veto. 
And this goes on, a period of Johnson squatting like a troll over the federal government, refusing to pass anything to fix the myriad fuck-ups 500,000 people had just died for. Congress, in return, becomes increasingly convinced that congressional action is necessary to enact progress over executive action. This would lead to such actions of congressional reconstruction as the 14th Amendment, which would enshrine in the Constitution many of the Civil Rights Act Johnson had previously attempted to veto. Around this time, Johnson went on his public speaking tour, the Swing Around the Circle tour, where he attempted to drum up support for himself. The increasingly disastrous tour saw Johnson frequently comparing himself to Christ, engaging in yelling matches with hecklers who were shouting things like, We want Grant! about Ulysses S. Grant, who was there with him for parts of the tour before he left in disgust. Uh, And at the last stop, uh, Johnson's platform collapsed, killing 13 people. But Johnson was forced to take off in his train due to uh, train traffic rather than stick around and tend to the survivors, looking like even more of a grade-A asshole. Just waving from the caboose. Sorry, bye, sorry. Good luck, guys. Uh, Sorry about that. Uh, hope, Hope it's not too bad. Uh, So Johnson returns to Washington, ridiculed by the press, and Congress is feeling heightened power. With that, Matt, can you walk us through the period of radical reconstruction? So radical reconstruction was an attempt by the uh, huge majority of the veto-proof majority of Republicans in the House and Senate at this point, because remember, there isn't much representation from any of the seceding states at this point, uh, who want to overrule Johnson's lenient policy by disenfranchising uh, former Confederates and empowering mostly federal courts to uh, protect an ex- the exercise of black political rights. So this meant uh, passing laws that allowed blacks to sue in federal court that, uh, and of course the extension of the Freedmen's Bureau to intervene in local issues on behalf of former slaves. Uh, and this was driven uh, in large part by the fact that Johnson's preferred approach to the South was doomed by the fact that as soon as he re-empowered the old pre-war leadership, they immediately set about conducting horrifying suppression of uh, black rights, exercise of violence uh, to suppress black electoral participation, uh, and also the passage of a bunch of black codes that were meant to essentially give the state the authority to carry out the labor uh, coercive mechanism that was solely the prerogative of the slave owner before the war. They basically took Johnson's deal as, look, we'll get rid of slavery by uh, its name and with its private character, but we're going to make it instead a uh, public good. Uh, And that was not anything that most Northerners wanted to see after having fought the war. It wasn't enough of a distinction to have made it worthwhile. So the Reconstruction government, led by guys like Thaddeus Stevens, set about trying to uh, protect black rights where they were under attack by these new uh, ex-Confederate governments that were, as soon as put in pack and power, immediately hyper-repressing former slaves. So uh, these efforts as I involved uh, beefing up the federal authority in the South, but even here there was a significant resistance to utilize the army directly to protect the formerly enslaved, for fear of overturning the established relationship between the citizen and the government, that even some of the more radical Republicans like Charles Sumner considered sacrosanct. Only the real economic radicals of the party, like Thaddeus Stevens, Benjamin Wade, and after he became a congressman in 1868, Benjamin Butler, were willing to accept the titanic change wrought by the war and to endorse a new civic understanding where the well-being of the public is secured by an active, responsive state. 
Uh, and not coincidentally, these radicals were also the only Republicans willing to capitalize this new state with fiat currency rather than specie. But we'll get to that later. But the upshot is that this is a divided Republican Party coalescing around the issue of resistance to Johnson's leniency and intervention on behalf of the political and civic rights of blacks in the South. So Congress passed three more reconstruction bills over presidential veto, establishing military rule over the South and superseding the civil governments Johnson wanted to recognize there. In response, Johnson attempted to fire his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, who is actively undermining Johnson's policies from inside his administration. Congress had recently passed the Tenure of Office Act requiring congressional approval for dismissing cabinet officers, and this firing was seen as a violation. This led to Johnson being impeached by the House in February 1868, but eventually acquitted by the Senate by a one-vote margin in May. I'm kind of yada-yadaing the details here because the point is the Johnson presidency is one long story of his imperious inflexibility and willingness to completely capitulate to Southern concerns in hope of building a new constituency around himself. The congressional response was full-fledged battle, and on issue after issue, they were able to scrape authority away from the executive and effectively rendered Johnson a non-entity in government by the end of his term. And yet the damage was done. Johnson's lenient presidential reconstruction and intransigence with Congress had fatally undermined efforts to effectively topple the planter elite, integrate freed slaves into civil society, empower white laborers, and above all, effectively redistribute former plantation land. And on the way out the door, he pardoned basically everyone in the Confederate high command, including Jefferson Davis. What happened to that bounty, man? And for all this, Johnson was shut out of the 1868 Democratic nomination. Thanks for nothing. (laughs) What have you done for me lately? (laughs) Rejected by both parties, unable to form his own, bitter, defeated, Johnson returned to Greenville. After several failed runs for office in the 1870s, in 1875, he would finally get reelected to the U.S. Senate, the only president to ever do so. But after a brief Senate session in March, Johnson suffered a stroke and died in July. He was the only living ex-president at the time of his death. He was buried in Greenville, Tennessee, wrapped in a U.S. flag with a copy of the Constitution placed under his head. Rest in piss. What a dramatic bitch to the end. Absolute number one, just dog shit king. They don't get much worse because they very few, very few of these guys have any real ability to, to change the flow of history. And this motherfucker is right there at the crossroads, just pissing in the goddamn stream. Uh, yeah, he had the opportunity. He had the motivation. He did the crime. Uh, so the election of 1868, the Republicans unanimously nominated General Ulysses S. Grant for the president, seeking a war hero to sanctify their program of national union with aggressive reconstruction. After a long balloting process, the Democrats landed on former New York governor Horatio Seymour, an old line conservative Democrat who had supported Johnson's policies. Grant would sweep the Electoral College 214 to 80, but the popular vote was relatively close, which was very startling, according to Republican Rep. James G. Blaine. It signaled a surprising recovery from the Democrats who had been so closely linked to secession just a few years earlier, and a grim warning of the popularity of Democratic policies and tactics. Matt, any thoughts on the election of 1868? So one of the reasons that Johnson is spared removal from office uh, by that one-vote margin is that 
because there is no, there was no vice president after Johnson was elevated to the presidency. If he'd been removed from office, the presidency would have fallen to the president pro tempore of the Senate, who was Senator Benjamin Wade. And Benjamin Wade, as I said earlier, is among the leaders of the Republican politicians who want to see the debt that the United States had accrued during the war, the, the, the securities that had been sold to fund the building of the war machine, be redeemed not with a resumption of gold specie, which was what the majority of the Republican Party wanted to do. They wanted to bring back as much as quickly as possible the gold standard. It would take years, but they wanted to get rid of the notion that the government could just print money, which is, of course, horrible. You can't let the people know that. The Civil War had really <laughs> exposed the, 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 the skeleton of the state and revealed the, the role of the state in, in, in dictating currency. And that would not do for many Republicans who wanted to see that mystification reintroduced, the idea that there is something transcendent and, uh, about gold, that it's not a government policy, that it transcends uh, political considerations. And so they wanted to get back on the gold standard as quickly as possible. But of course, that meant that the government would be able to do less, spend less, uh, pursue reconstruction less vigorously, uh, and to help the economic transition of people of both races in the South. And so men like Thaddeus Stevens and Benjamin Wade in the Senate very much wanted to uh, repay those war debts with more greenbacks and use those greenbacks to finance a recovery. Uh, and that was very much not in the interests of the center of gravity of the Republican Party. So uh, that proved incentive for some people to vote against uh, removing Johnson from office. And it ensured that when the Republicans met in 1868 to nominate a candidate for presidency, it would be someone who they could fill as a vessel. And the vessel was Ulysses Grant, the, the preeminent hero of the Republic, the savior of the Republic, the new George Washington, who was essentially apolitical and had very few deeply held political beliefs and so could be controlled in some respect and directed away from the soft money claims of the radicals like Wade and Stevens. Uh, and so Grant was their man on horseback, the guy who subsumed the contradictions of the party, which, they, which has happened again and again already in American uh, political history. And so they want to see Grant take their free labor model, which they feel was vindicated by the war, and extend it throughout the continent. There was no more need for any more social revolution. There was only a need to impose contract labor relationships universally, and those who deserved it would prosper, and the devil take the hindmost. <laughs> and that meant that uh, the Republicans were not really able to run on any kind of economic agenda because they had nothing they could offer people beyond the, the prospect of deflation and increased debt and uh, reduced economic activity. Uh, but the Democrats, controlled by the same free war finance uh, powers that the, they had before the war, were just as captured at the top of the party by these interests, by the hard money orthodoxy. Uh, and so they nominated George uh, Horatio Seymour, who was one of the richest men in the country, who had grown incredibly wealthy consulting with Wall Street firms, uh, to be their nominee over George Pendleton, who was an Ohio greenbacker. Uh, so even though the Democratic Party had more northern grassroots uh, soft money uh, opinion, because 
the middle classes of the Republican Party were against it, of course, uh, because many of them held small amounts of that debt, and many and they held the the free the free labor orthodoxies. Uh, but so, but even with the populist base of the Democratic Party, the top was still contained controlled by uh, by Eastern money, and so an Eastern money man Seymour becomes the nominee, which means that since there can't really be any political or any economic disagreement at the top of this race it ended up being a referendum on reconstruction and on the democrats terms a referendum on the humanity of black people they basically ran a horrifying pure reactionary white supremacist campaign uh meanwhile the the republicans campaign on uh patriotism uh and the bloody shirt the notion that these motherfuckers shot your dad and you're going to just let them get back in charge. These people betrayed your country and you're just going to re-empower them. The people who didn't do anything to you, who they exploited, are going to be uh, re-enslaved in all but name. Uh, and so the campaign became uh, the, first of a, of the first of a series of campaigns that with no uh, real economic differences between the parties as they're captured more and more by capital after the war become a pure referenda on one's tribal allegiance to the civil war whether one found oneself emotionally connected to the symbols of the the grand army of the republic or of the lost cause and that becomes the only thing that politics can depend on and and its expression in the race politics of uh of black equality and so grant the handsomest general. The handsomest by far of the handsome general. Yes. I, I was noticed going through this that they really take the Grant mold and then just kind of uh, go let the beard get longer and longer as time goes on. Yep. Let's turn it into a curtain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Grant, the handsomest general, was inaugurated president on March 4th, 1869. Hiram Ulysses Grant was born April 27th, 1822 in Point Pleasant, Ohio. His father was a tanner and abolitionist, and Grant was raised in a Whig and Methodist household. He received a reasonable frontier education, and his father obtained him a nomination to West Point. He was enlisted in September 1839. An error from his nomination process listed his name as U.S. Grant, and it stuck, with fellow cadets calling him Sam for Uncle Sam, U.S. Uncle Sam, Sam Grant. Uh, I like that he just, they misspelled, basically misspelled his name and he just kind of went with it for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, He's like, well, never mind. It would be a big hassle to change it now. And I mean, Hiram, do I really want to be Hiram or do I want to be U.S. Grant? It was clearly an upgrade. Yeah. Grant was initially indifferent to military life and graduated in the middle of his class in 1843. He was mediocre in academics, though enjoyed reading, establishing himself as an expert horseman and got, like everything I read about Grant, they made sure to mention that the man knew his way around a horse. The dude was a horse uh, boy. Uh, of the man on a horseback that we've uh, talked about so far, he was really the, the one who felt at yes. home on a horse. Yeah. Uh, and he even studied under a romantic painter for some time. You can look up Grant's paintings on the internet. He was shipped out for his first assignment to St. Louis, Missouri, already looking forward to finishing his service and perhaps becoming a teacher. Soon, in 1848, Grant married Julia Dent, the sister of one of his West Coast buddies, and decided to stay in the military to support his new family. So Grant shipped off down to Mexico for the emerging Mexican-American War. He served there under Zachary Taylor. 
He distinguished himself in both bravery and tactics during the war, including one incident where he rode through heavy fire by expertly clinging to the side of his horse opposite enemy lines, which does sound truly action hero heroic. He served as quartermaster for a period, giving him in-depth experience with logistics, supply routes, and equipping and mobilizing armies in hostile territory. Hope, you know, that doesn't come back into play for him. Looking forward to a lifetime of peace for U.S. Grant. After the war... Grant bounced around on different military assignments, eventually being ordered to reinforce California, now filling up with gold rush chasers. He led a group of soldiers and civilians from New York to California, including an overland expedition through Panama. He was posted to Vancouver Barracks in Oregon and eventually to Fort Humboldt in Upper California. There, feeling the separation from his family back in St. Louis, Grant took to drinking. A superior officer would eventually ask him to resign over his drinking, which he did in 1854. The 1850s were a hard time for the Grants. Lacking any non-military skills, he tried his hand at farming, mostly working land that belonged to his wife, Julia's father. Farming never took off for Grant, and at various times he was forced to sell firewood on street corners and even sell his watch to buy his family Christmas gifts. Eventually, he gave up resisting his father's trade and went to Galena, Illinois, to work one of his father's tanneries, run by his brothers, Simpson and Orville. You know what the funny thing is, is that that was his entire uh, reason for going to West Point is that he just didn't want to be a tanner. Being a tanner sounded like it sucked. Yeah. And then it turns out, yeah, guess you got to move in with the folks and take up tanning, dude. Sorry. Just, yeah. You just couldn't do anything else. Uh, just vile chemicals and even like human piss on, uh, on, on animal hides all day. I mean, I, I get it. But also, you know, if Simpson and Orville are right there with the tannery and you're selling firewood on the street corner, I mean, it's you just, know, it's time to tan, dude. It's time to yeah, tan. So on April 12th, 1861, the Civil War broke out, and on April 15th, President Lincoln put out his call for 75,000 volunteers. After hearing a recruitment speech from his father's attorney, Grant felt a swell of patriotism and joined the Union war effort. Now, I know that we probably don't want to go into Grant's war service too much because, uh, again, you know, get you started on the Civil War, we could go for hours, but is there anything that you want to say about what the war did for Grant or what he made of the war. So Grant immediately starts uh, rocketing up the ranks because there's a very thin supply of experienced military uh, off uh, commanders of any kind uh, in the, in the, the United States at that point, the U S military was very, very small. The cream of the crop was of Southern extraction and had seceded. Uh, they begged, they begged Robert E. Lee to take over the, the, control the army of the Potomac. And he said, no, because his heart belonged to Virginia. <laughs> uh, so, so Grant is able to, to get a uh, place very quickly in the ranks, but he succeeds because uh, at the end of the day, I think he just didn't have a big ego about it. He was not a guy like McClellan who uh, before the war even started, thought that he was the reincarnation of Napoleon. And as such was absolutely terrified of losing who overestimated the size of enemy forces, at the, uh, compulsively because he so feared a reckoning that would undermine his sense of himself. Grant had already failed at being a soldier and failed at everything else in his life. Uh, so he was able to sort of see the situation clearly. Uh, would you call him a real lunch pail nine to five type general? He's absolutely, he was a grinder. Uh, and there's a great quote from William uh, Sherman about Grant uh, because they were very, they, over the course of the war, they worked together very intimately in the Western Front. They ended up uh, operating in tandem uh, during the end of the war as Sherman sliced through the underbelly and Grant dueled Lee in northern Virginia. Uh, and he, 
Sherman also said about Grant, he stood by me when I was crazy and I stood by him when he was drunk. Uh, he has a quote about Grant that I think really sums the man's uh, qualities up and why he was such a singular uh, uh, figure in the war and able to master what seemed absolutely incop- uh, impossible for a lot of the people that they cycled through before they got to him. I am damn smarter man than Grant. I know more about military history, strategy, and grand tactics than he does. I know more about supply, administration, and everything else than he does. I'll tell you where he beats me, though, and where he beats the world. He doesn't give a damn about what the enemy does out of his sight, but it scares me like hell. (laughs) I am more nervous than he is. I am more likely to change my orders or to countermarch my command than he is. He uses such information as he has according to his best judgment. He issues his orders, and he does his level best to carry them out without much reference to what is going on about him. And so far, experience seems to have fully justified it. So he's got, he's got a kind of confidence. And so that was Grant. He kept his head down. And this is a period when all of these military guys are absolute uh, hysteric fancy lads. They're, <laughs> they've, they've all imbibed this pseudo-chivalric code, and they're all half of hair's triggered from dueling one another and waving their <laughs> cravats at one another and carrying out a romantic Napoleonic fantasy. Grant is just trying to keep a roof over his head without having to be soaked in cat piss at the tannery. <laughs> and in prosecuting the war, uh, Grant also gained a severe disdain for the South and the Southern cause itself, which would carry over into his presidency, referring to it as, quote, one of the worst for which people ever fought. And had the least justification. Yeah. Yeah. So Grant is the president. He's remembered by some as a poor president for a few rinky-dink scandals. It's the whiskey ring, credit mobilier. Mobilier? Mobilier! Mobilier. I do not uh, speak French, uh, nor do I have a tongue for it, so just go with it. Mobilier. Credit mobilier. As Matt's referenced before, uh, these are things that you probably remember having to know about, uh, about Grant's terms for like a 10th grade history class. Yeah, that's 100%. The list of terms you have to have... To be able to identify on the test, Credit Mobilier and the Whiskey Ring. You don't remember anything else about them. You just remember you had to know the words and be able to fit them like a block into the into the hole on your test. So can you can we just dismiss these real quick? Uh, um, you want to do a quick run through about what they were and uh, why Grant maybe shouldn't get dinged for them? Well, the thing about both of these scandals and all the scandals under Grant is that they really don't have anything to do with Grant so much as they do with the emergence of the post-war uh, state uh, of the capture, the slow and steady capture of the mechanisms of governance by these new concentrations of capital that emerged during the war. Uh, and and it, was, it was carried out by fair means and foul, uh, by a lot of stuff that was completely above the board, uh, starting with a bunch of very... Uh, uh, fortuitous civil uh, um, Supreme Court decisions, <laughs> uh, all but at the at the dirtier level, at the grassroots, it was accomplished by a lot of good old fashioned bribery, a lot of pure <laughs> corruption, uh, a lot of simply purchasing of government influence. And Grant oversaw a lot of that during his administration. But it was the defining characteristic of post-war government. As soon as uh, as soon as the Republican Party. Uh, decided to, in its you know, corporate way, to, uh, to accede to this sort of leveraged buyout by capital, which, of course, and the thing to stress is, of course, the U.S. government has always represented the interests of its ruling elite throughout this period. But it is only the Civil War which creates this huge concentration of capital and a huge expansion of state power. 
And those two things are wedded together into a new machinery of, uh, of political and economic uh, function where, where, where capitalism has, has overawed the structures of governance. Uh, and it's, it happens after the Civil War as a consequence of not just the Civil War, but the way that Reconstruction uh, ended up. The popular forces that could have resisted this were demobilized rather than mobilized. Uh, and so while you've got poor Ulysses S. Grant in the White House trying to do his best, trusting the things people tell him, because who else is he going to trust? He doesn't know any th- about this stuff. He has his friends that he leans on because he can trust them, and he doesn't really know what they're doing behind his back. And everybody else is just looking out for number one because there's a bunch of money now, a lot of it just the money that the government had loaned out during the war, uh, now in the form of securities held by these private, cor- uh, private interests, are now buying, with the government's own money, influence over the government in the form of bribery of its officers. So Credit Mobilier, which happened right as the war ends but doesn't come out until the early 1870s, uh, is a scheme whereby a government-backed railroad, uh, the Union Pacific, saw a massive bribery uh, with stock, for the most part, of government officials uh, to persuade them to supply the company with funding, uh, favorable laws, regulatory rulings, and land. Because the end of the war saw the need for some economic engine to fill the place of the war, and the thing that the government decided on was railroads. Decided on because they were in the process of being bought out by them. So Credit Mobilier, it's a combination of the sort of bribery that was the signature of the post-war railroad boom, uh, and also just good old-fashioned embezzling, because the railroad also uh, greatly inflated its cost, construction costs, and they were able to bill for way more than it cost to build the railroad and pocket all of the money. Uh, so that's Credit Mobilier, and there you see an example of the the, uh, the corrupt takeover of government uh, through its uh, elected officials in the form of uh, railroad, the, the 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 new railroad economy. The whiskey ring is. Uh, even lower to the gut. The Risky Ring is an example of how uh, corruption infiltrated through the state's regulatory mechanisms. Because at this point, the state, this newly empowered post-war state, is uh, has a lot of regulatory capacity to carry out. Uh, it's got it needs uh, federal marshals to serve warrants. It needs people to uh, be Indian agents on reservations. It needs people to be assessors of uh, customs tax and excise tax. And the way that this uh, work was farmed out was through political patronage and a fee-based uh, income system where instead of getting regular uh, paychecks from the government, you were paid in fees for carrying out legal uh, requirements. Uh, and that led to an entrepreneurial attitude among the state <laughs> bureaucracy, which incentivized hustling and corruption. And the whiskey ring, which occurred later in Grant's terms uh, and was found out in 1875, involved a huge network of local uh, tax assessors, government officials, all the way up to the president's private secretary, Orville Babcock, being bribed (laughs) by whiskey distillers to provide tax stamps in exchange for a lower tax than was actually supposed to be levied on the whiskey. The money left over being shared between 
the distillers and these government officials and with some of it being kicked into the coffers of the Republican Party, which had uh, supplied a lot of those patronage jobs in the first place. And in this case, you have, again, friends of Grant going behind his back to be crooked, him trusting them, and then uh, speaking on their behalf, uh, but all the while pretty much powerless to stop this process because uh, I think the thing to remember about Grant is that he was only in that spot because everyone who uh, was there at his nomination knew that he would not be an effective uh, pursuer of independent political interests. But Grant did effectively pursue Reconstruction. He was zealous in enforcing black civil rights and prosecuting against racial violence in the South. I'm going to ping it on back to you for this. So once Congress takes over control of Reconstruction and then Grant comes in with a a real Republican administration again, uh, the post-war leniency of Johnson is removed. Uh, The 15th 15th Amendment uh, is passed. Black sovereignty is extended to the South. No, there is no land redistribution, but political sovereignty is given instead. Uh, it's very explicitly said by many of the Republicans, we don't need to give the former slaves land, we give them the ballot, and then they'll take care of itself. But of course, that depends on blacks being able to engage with uh, the civic society on equal footing, which the uh, white leadership of the South was absolutely committed to preventing from happening. And so uh, in order to prevent black political authority from being exercised uh, a wave of violence politically oriented violence swept the south this is when you see the ku klux klan be brought into existence and night riders uh, bushwhacking people a wave of political assassination mass intimidation voter fraud where democrats ran the local courts and very little recourse for former slaves at the same time there were white southerners who were also subject to the same violence you had carpetbaggers which is the name for northerners who'd gone to the South to help in Reconstruction, either to make money or to do good or to do both. Uh, but then also there were scalawags who were, <laughs> uh, local, who were Southern Republicans. And these, there were a lot of these in the mountainous areas that had resisted Confederate rule during the war. Uh, and they were also subject to this violence. Uh, and at first there was a, res- a reluctance to use military force to suppress this because of the, the lack of desire of involving the army too much, of testing the patience of the northern republic for an investment of troops here uh, now that the war was over. And it was the continued just violent defiance of the former Confederates that essentially pressed the issue and led to the establishment of martial law in some hotspots, mass arrests of Klan members, which effectively ended... Uh, the violence in these places uh, and helped facilitate this brief period of actual black political power in the South where blacks were able to vote in large numbers, were able to elect uh, integrated slates in state governments and send black congressmen and senators to to Washington, D.C. And a lot of that was because of the uh, efforts of the federal government uh, to suppress violence. The, The important emphasis there is that violence was suppressible. It could be defeated, even in this context where you have uh, economic uh, stagnation in the South, uh, very little development, no land redistribution. Uh, even in this even this context, the white resistance to integrate interracial democracy was uh, handleable. 
and Grant did a relatively good job of handling it. But of course, uh, there was uh, ultimate reticence to push it as far as it needed to go uh, because of a desire not to see the the political the 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 social revolutionary implications of the of the uh, pursuit of black rights uh, too aggressively pursued. So I want to run through the election of 1872 quickly before we get on to Grant's economic matters, uh, because the two are interrelated. Basically, an opposition began to coalesce within the Republicans to Grant, mainly those who opposed his strong reconstruction plans, as well as reformers who felt Grant was too cozy with so-called spoilsmen, those who freely profited and exchanged with the increasingly rampant corruption within government. This is the bourgeois base of the Republican Party. These, these mm-hmm. are the people uh, in the cities. These are the people around capital. These are the people in the uh, political, uh, uh, super, politi- the political cultural superstructure around capital, universities, journals of opinion and, and news. Uh, these people are committed to limiting Reconstruction to abolition with no other change in social conditions, uh, the reaffirmation of contract law and property rights as the basis for uh, a new liberal order, which now with slavery defeated could be finally manifested in America. Uh, that, was the, that was the vision. And they saw Grant's pursuit of reconstruction uh, policies as overly injurious to those tr- things that they valued. Uh, and also the, the spoil system of uh, government corruption, which we'll talk about, really was the only way for uh, regular people to get any sort of influence uh, and benefit from government at this point. Uh, and they wanted to turn that spigot off too. They wanted to make everybody uh, a independent market actor without any aid from the government. Uh, they wanted a, a validation of property rights as they existed and no more leaking a hole. Uh, <laughs> and so they organized around, they thought that because they were so influential in public opinion because they were basically everybody who wrote for every newspaper they really did think that they were uh the center of gravity of the of the actual party as opposed to just its most loud and influential uh cultural voices uh and so they had their own convention and they nominated horace greeley yes Horace Greeley, the long prominent independent leaning whig newspaper editor of the new york tribune uh, Greeley is the uh, guy who said, go west, young man, and grow up with your country. Greeley was also nominated by the Democrats this year, who mainly sought Grant's defeat. Granted, the Republicans strategically adopted several of the liberal Republican desires for reform, uh, some civil service reforms, lowered tariffs, amnesty towards some old Confederates. They even addressed the burgeoning women's suffrage movement by writing that women's issues would be given, quote, respectful consideration in their platform, uh, which I included because that's the I see you, I hear you, you are valid of its day. Yes. We're giving it respectful consideration. Grant destroyed Greeley, winning the Electoral College 286 to 66, which was then made even more decisive by the fact that Greeley fucking died on November 29th of that year, three weeks after the election, but before the electoral votes were even counted. Uh, So rip Horace Greeley. Thanks for establishing the early standards of quality in American journalism. He got BTFO there, just absolutely annihilated. And it really did show uh, that 
there things can be deceptive in in the in the in the life of the mind because the liberal republicans really thought that they represented the the wellspring of political opinion in the country because it was the uh what they thought the only decent opinions the only decent opinion you could have was that the government should only exist to enforce contracts and anything else is wrong that existing property relations are ordained by uh god by god and nature uh and that anything that went against that was uh, somehow unseemly that that gold was holy these are the <laughs> things that they held very sacredly most people uh didn't care about any of that shit they wanted a job they wanted to be able to make money farming uh they wanted to see the the war they fought mean something uh and so the vast majority of actual voters in the north said yeah no we'll stick with with these guys no problem yeah spoil <laughs> schmoils uh my cousin has a job because of that and oh yeah you're the guys who fucking shot me <laughs> two things on that i've i've whenever i read about tammany hall i always kind of like i mean i get why air quotes corruption in government is bad but also i just it's like it's just guys getting paid and it's just like people working in the community getting paid in a way you know it's 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 just a uh, uh, kind of a, a an efficient way to uh to move money down into from the government into people's hands it, it the government exists to like spigot resources where influence concentrates and so that means that most resources get spigoted northward into capital into the hands of the ruling class of course but in order to maintain a a uh, a putatively democratic system you need some buy-in and participation from the bottom and there has to be something in it for them and that's where corruption comes in i see uh there's there's a little like quaintness and ni- niceness to it and and the little it's the little guy had, getting his beat corruption wet, is beat what wet. you have before you can exercise class politics yeah because you your leverage in the political machine as as like a block of voters uh is the only thing that you can use to exercise but because it's not around labor it's around politics all you can really do is extract from the political process and that means yes uh getting some uh getting some cheese out of the out of the state reconstruct construction budget or at least a free drink for your vote yeah A a fine thanksgiving turkey uh, also, I think that Horace Greeley has to go down as the most defeated man in uh, American Just died presidents. immediately for both the that electoral college total and then immediately dying. Lost so bad he died. Yeah, <laughs> talk about down bad. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Grant second term. Uh, let's go. Let's talk about that corruption that we were just talking about because. Even though we were just kind of praising it, they weren't wrong. America after the Civil War found itself at a time when government was increasingly captured, uh, not just by, you know, Tammany Hall uh, uh, borough captains passing out free drinks, but captured by corporations. The super concentration of capital in the North from the buildup of wartime industries had given rise to new corporate formulations, the dreaded trust, uh, increasing financialization, and an outlet for development and speculation in the railroads. Matt, can you brief us on the new dawn of capital power that's going to fuel the transformation of the Reconstruction Age into the Gilded Age? So what you have after the war is this huge concentration of capital, this new, uh, this new elite who are, who are getting gold uh, that they had paid paper for and are able to uh, now purchase government. Uh, and as I said, though, like corruption is partially how this takeover happens. But at the base level, uh, the, the stuff that the liberal Republicans really hated uh, the spoil stuff, that's really just, uh, that's the part that actually requires an accountability to some sort of electorate. Uh, the, the corruption that 
was least uh, addressed and least condemned by the liberal Republicans, and mostly for the sake of the appearance of uh, consistency, was the massive and mostly legal transfer of massive amounts of land and government wealth into the private hands of railroad interests. So the war ends and the economy is now is expanded massively by the war, but there is no continued activity on the, on the size of the war itself. The army is being demobilized. Um, and that capital has to go somewhere. And the decision made by those people who uh, had accumulated all that capital was railroads because the country was in the process of uh, being united in a infrastructure uh, that would facilitate the westward expansion that everyone understood as the fundamental logic of the republic and uh, only railroads would um, would support that uh, and it's important to note that railroads did not show up to service areas of settlement in the west uh, it was very much a case of the government fronting money and land to railroads on spec, basically. And they yeah. would build these railroads basically guessing where anybody would live. Uh, and mostly heedless of the fact that west of the 99th uh, longitudinal parallel, soil uh, richness and, and precipitation are not really sufficient for the sort of large-scale agriculture that was people were used to uh, farther east. Uh, so a lot of these things didn't make any money uh but they were kept afloat by their relationship to government and their ability to continue to sell uh stock that they would then use the proceeds for to pay off dividends to old investors and maintain a uh, aura of financial health it's very much in the ponzi scheme tradition of american politics or of american economics the america is a series of speculative bubbles all of them predest on borrowing against an assumption of eternal growth. Uh, and uh, this orientation of government helps doom reconstruction by constraining currency supplies, strangling uh, the ability of people in the South to get out from under debt, destroying the chance for any kind of uh, interracial solidarity, and ensuring the triumph of white supremacy as the defining political orientation of the region because. There was no uh, Homestead Act for the South. There was a Southern Homestead Act, but it only applied to federal, uh, unclaimed federal lands, which were mostly useless. All the prime land was in private hands because it was never mm-hmm. redistributed. But the real death knell for Reconstruction uh, was the Panic of 1873, which saw, because of the reluctance of Europe to continue uh, buying these speculative railroad railroad bonds the entire market collapsed and it caused a massive and to this day unprecedented economic contraction in america the longest uninterrupted decline uh, the longest period of economic decline uh in the country country's history even after the great depression uh because it was a great depression with no new deal because the american people were too scattered too broken up by region and race uh, and too, frankly, agricultural to to meaningfully demand uh, an alternative. Although we'll talk about how uh, that movement becomes com- <clears throat> starts to come into being during this period. You see the first large scale uh, industrial union actions of this period. 
the first large-scale coordinated strikes and boycotts are all a result of this uh, collapse, which has as one of its main uh, results the undermining of these Reconstruction Southern governments and the uh, destruction of any hope of enduring Republican power outside of the black community in the South uh, and ensures that when uh, the Republicans uh, come to array their power and array their demographic blocks, that they'll be happy to sacrifice those Southern blacks uh, on the altar of a new, uh, more white supremacist orientation uh, that comes as a result of the, the coarsening and the trauma and the horror of this massive economic catastrophe. And just as a note, we will probably be covering more of the union activity and some of these economic uh, developments here more in the next episode, which will focus more on the Gilded Age. We're going to stick more with co- uh, Reconstruction right now. But also, I just like this quote from a contemporary writer, James Parton, of the nature of business at that time and uh, you know this ph- phenomenon of consolidation. Quote, a business establishment must now be immense or nothing. It must absorb or be absorbed. It must either be great resistless maelstrom of business drawing countless wrecks into its vortex or it must be itself a wreck and contribute its quote to the all-engulfing prosperity of a rival yep all this concentration at the top means that uh all the emerging industries of the north lumber mining uh even um animal ranching uh and uh, railroads tend towards consolidation uh, mm-hmm. into a, a series of trusts that coordinate the market to avoid the worst uh, result of volatility because capitalism, it turns out, really loves monopoly. It actually doesn't <laughs> like competition. That's, uh, kind of, that's kind of a bit that they do. Uh, and this <laughs> is when you see because of gov- government's powerlessness in the face of this new capital formation, uh, like the social, the social order is just not ready for this and can't formulate a response. Uh, and so it overawes and dominates at this period, but it's also the period when it starts to break up. Grant also attempted a humane Indian policy, but was curtailed by the pressures of expansion and settling. He appointed the first Native American to Commissioner of Indian Affairs and pursued a peace policy and generally uh, pursued the supposedly humane liberal policy of the day of attempting to assimilate Indians into white culture. But we will see where this has its failings. And unfortunately, expansion and economic interests would continue to wreak havoc on any attempts of peace and Indian wars would uptick during his second term. Yes, this is a period when the closest thing you saw in government to a humane policy which is really what grant tried to pursue which is when you see uh the resistance of the plains indians to western expansion uh slowly and steadily uh reduced mostly through ecological uh warfare and mass destruction of buffalo habitats and, and hunting grounds and uh the strategic laying of railways to cut off uh tribes from uh sources of sustenance so that in winter months they could be uh, corralled into reservation areas and uh, and essentially bribed with food. With this situation in place, the poles of opinion uh, are either amongst the liberals, uh, a cultural genocide, and amongst the more uh, hard-nosed, 
uh, a literal genocide mm. because everyone was everyone understood that the mode of life of the American Indian was incompatible with this new America that was finally organized around uh, property rights uh, extended throughout uh, the continent. And so, therefore, the Indian would have to die out one way or the other. Uh, and the liberal policy of people like Grant was to see uh, Native American lands turned into independent small farms like white people uh, had, uh, and th- that their livelihoods would be marketized the way white people's were. Uh, but, of course, you know, there is, that is the destruction of a world, uh, but it's, it was the only thing that seemed possible because the inevitability of destruction was set by the terms of expansion, which uh, demanded this land to be dispossessed and which guaranteed a continued conflict, which during this period was also very violent. Uh, and you saw the gold rush in the Black Hills, the extension of uh, uh, railroads uh, into that tier of the country, a huge pressure on the uh, on the Lakota and other uh, Sioux tribes of that area, which led to George Armstrong Custer's misadventures. Uh, so George Armstrong Custer was a Civil War hero who had been a general, uh, who had been a promoted general during the war, uh, but then had stayed in the regular army at the rank of colonel uh, and was a vainglorious popinjay who was <laughs> very interested in his own celebrity and his own uh advancement and also was very happy to do the bidding of gold speculators and railroad interests in pushing even against the treaty obligations the united states had signed incurring into the black hills and surrounding areas to uh, provoke conflict with the the uh, native americans there uh it started it led to a massacre uh in a village at washita creek of uh, mostly non-combatants and then culminated in uh, a massive self-own at the Battle of Little Bighorn. And to his credit, uh, Grant would say of this, basically, that Custer got what he deserved at uh, yeah. Little Bighorn. You get what you fucking deserve! But, uh, you know, throughout the entire time was doing very little to, to you know, rectify this, this situation in the West. So... The election of 1876. This one is a real barn burner. It's still the most disputed election in U.S. history. Although I guess some of the people who uh, like to talk about Russia might dispute that. But we're going with it uh, because of the conditions around this one. After wavering a bit on the subject, Grant decided not to seek a third term. So the Republican Party coalesced around Rutherford B. Hayes, a Civil War general and former governor from Ohio. The Democrats went with Samuel J. Tilden, the governor of New York. Tilden came up in the Martin Van Buren machine and had been aligned with Tammany Hall until the early 1870s when the pursuit of anti-corruption policies put him at odds with Boss Tweed. Hayes and Tilden ended up having a fairly identical policies on hard money, civil service reform, and anti-corruption, so the race was basically decided on the support of Reconstruction, just like 1868. At this point, the South had massively realigned against the Republicans, and Tilden swept, winning the popular vote by over 200,000 votes. So, Matt, why don't we talk about President Tilden? Well, the first thing to note is that uh, one of the big reasons that the South had aligned, the main reason that the South had really aligned against Republicans is that uh, in the aftermath of the collapse of uh, 1873 uh, and the f- uh, 
the withdrawal of uh, Freedmen Bureau resources and military forces there in the South uh, as, as, as capital and uh, interest went West, violence once again erupted and uh, black political participation was massively suppressed at the barrel of a gun and another wave of, of intimidation, violence, and voter fraud. Uh, and that led to a situation where uh, Louisiana and Florida and South Carolina claimed dueling slates of electors because of dueling counts in those states, which were in the process of uh, fighting between these uh, besieged uh, Republican political machines uh, and these and the totally rampaging and uh, and violent Democrats who were waging a largely one-sided uh, guerrilla war against uh, Republican governance in those states, and so the the question came to Congress of which electors would be recognized, and Congress and this caused a huge conflict. People talked about the Civil War starting up again. People cla- threatened to to march into Washington with guns. That was McClellan, right? Yeah, of course. McClellan says, hey, I'll be dictator if you guys want. <laughs> you know, I, I decided not to be. I could have been during war, at the beginning of the Civil War. I could have gone into Washington and deposed Lincoln. I chose not to. Ran against him fair and square. I lost. That's fine. I went home. I didn't do a coup. But how about now? What do you think? <laughs> um, the House does the honorable thing, which is disavow responsibility. <laughs> which is to create to create a independent commission to make a determination and then to have everybody swear to abide by it. And of course it comes down to who's going to stock the commission. There's last minute shenanigans. Things are happening behind the scenes and amongst the power brokers of Washington in words and without so many words, it is understood that Hayes would get the presidency and the, his electors would be recognized in exchange for the final withdrawal of union tr- of, of federal troops from the South and the formal ending of reconstruction, the full restoration of white planter rule uh, in the South with the stipulation that the, that the amendments, the reconstruction amendments would stand. But of course, freeing the South to get as close to the bone as possible in uh, recognizing them. I do just like that the, um, the final version of this deal is supposedly stuck struck at a place called Wormley's Hotel, and I think Wormley's Hotel yes. is is a good name for a place where such yes. a deal would be struck. At this point, the Republican Party is much more interested in maintaining power. The massive patronage network that it had accumulated in in its in the time that it had been in, cha- in charge in Washington under Grant, uh, and also maintaining those close financial ties to the emerging capital industries. Uh, they didn't want to give those up and they were certainly happy to sacrifice uh, the former slaves on the altar of their continued domination of uh, Washington. And in this way, we see this trend that we've always been seeking, seeing the kind of rise of, of a new political force and a new uh, consolidation of power in the form of uh, Abraham Lincoln and then a continual diminution that only seeks to hold on to that power over a few generations. Yep, it's 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 basically the pattern with all of these parties. You get an initial ideologically motivated formation because that's the only reason. I mean, it's entrepreneurial, but it's also convinced and convicted. And then once power has been sought and achieved uh, at the top, the change in interests of those with power compared to those who might have voted them into power asserts itself. 
and power is sought for its own ends because those ends are real material ends to the people who staff the machine. Uh, I like seeing this uh, Republican uh, dealmaker Roscoe Conkling would uh, later refer to Hayes as both his fraudulency and, quote, Rutherford B. Hayes. God damn, Roscoe, don't hurt him. <laughs> Roscoe's a fucking killer. Rutherford Burchard Hayes was born October 4th, 1822, in Delaware, Ohio. He was educated well and attended Kenyon College, where he got involved with Whig student groups. Afterward, he attended Harvard Law School. I believe he's the first Harvard lawyer that we see in oh, the presidency. Boy. We love all of them, don't we, folks? Yes. Uh, and then he moved back to Ohio, eventually settling in Cincinnati, where he opened a law office. Hayes was a committed abolitionist and defended several fugitive slaves who had escaped north across the Ohio River. This, in turn, brought him into alignment with and prominence within the newly formed Republican Party. After the Confederate attack on Fort Sumter, Hayes joined a volunteer company and was then given an officer position in the Ohio Volunteer Infantry. Hayes fought bravely and led his men well during the war, sustaining several personal injuries and seeing action in West Virginia and the Shenandoah, eventually obtaining the rank of Major General. While serving, he was put up by Ohio Republicans for a seat in the House of Representatives. Uh, while refusing to leave the war to campaign, he won the seat and entered Congress for the December 1865 session that put an end to Andrew Johnson's disastrous presidential reconstruction. He was reelected in 1867, but returned home to run and win the governorship of Ohio. He served two terms as governor, retired briefly, and then was elected a third term in 1875. So Rutherford B. Hayes speed round there. But that gets us up to him getting elected president. We're going to see a few trends repeated here with Garfield next, so I'm going to kind of run through these to get to the big picture. Though Hayes supported Reconstruction in private and in his political career, the deal that got him in office and prevailing political forces constrained him. Congress was now in Democrat control, and Hayes spent his term battling with Congress over the Enforcement Acts, which allowed for the federal government to confront and suppress Klan activities. Congress again and again attempted to pass army appropriations bills with riders repealing the enforcement acts, which Hayes then vetoed. Finally, the appropriations were passed without the repeal of the enforcement acts, but then Congress failed to pass the funding for the federal marshals who would enforce it, rendering the point moot. Reconstruction would fade into the past, and the South fell firmly back into democratic control. Hayes also firmly supported civil service reform, uh, but this was a hard battle. Matt, maybe you can give us some background on the state of civil service by the Hayes administration. So the spoil system at this point started initiated by the Jacksonian democracy as well established as the as the way things get done at the at the grassroots level of the political parties without uh, a genuine ideological uh, uh, spine at this point, have, have, having committed themselves mostly to the maintenance of power, both parties have to provide people with a reason to vote for them. And uh, that means a reason to be motivated to organize on behalf of the party. And at this point, the main way that is done is by distributing patronage jobs through federal bureaucracy to people who then would be expected to kick back a percentage of their salaries to the party in a, so that the party would then be able to uh, fund its own uh, campaigns and its own infrastructure. This is the means. Uh, this is the first creation of the funding. This is the first funding model for uh, government. Now, for people like the uh, 
the the liberal Republicans uh, who would coalesce around uh, James Garfield. Um, this was an undue and uh, corrupt influence, basically from the bottom. The problem with the spoil system was that it it made the party answerable to common people, basically, uh, and that was an obstacle to the professionalized technocratic government that they were trying to build. Uh, and so the party, the Republican party starts to split between those who want to see a, a uh, rationalization of the political process, a removal of these uh, machines of uh, patronage and replacement with objective tests for competence and a, uh, a non-partial hiring procedure for federal employees. Uh, and the people who organize around that position become known as half-breeds. And the old line Republicans who supported Grant in 72 uh, are known as stalwarts. And their leader is New York Senator Roscoe Conkling. And uh, New York was the centerpiece of uh, the Patronage Network because the single biggest patronage plum in the federal uh, cornucopia was the job of customs inspector for the Port of New York. Because at certain points uh, during this period, during the Civil War, there's a temporary income tax, but there's no formal income tax until the uh, early 20th century. And there were periods during this time when up to two-thirds of total federal revenue passed through the New York Customs House. And so that gave New York uh, and Conkling a uh, powerful position to work from. Uh, And so Conkling and Hayes come into conflict over whether or not to turn the civil service into a professional core. So much of Hayes's fight focused on the New York Customs House, as Matt just said, run by the collector of the Port of New York, who was a guy named Chester A. Arthur, who was a Conkling protege. Hayes fought with Congress over ejecting Arthur and his corrupt cronies, eventually having to wait for Congress to adjourn and firing Chester A. Arthur and his men during recess and replacing them with recess appointments in 1878. While Hayes would not get any significant reform legislation passed, his pressuring would set the stage for the eventual passing of the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act in 1883, but we will get to that in a moment. Now, Hayes dealt with some other issues in his term, debates over currency, beginning of the Chinese exclusion in the West, uh, the continued domination of Native Americans, but I want to move on to Garfield just to emphasize continuity. Because in 1880, when Hayes followed his pledge to serve just one term, the Republicans put up James A. Garfield, another handsome Union general from Ohio. Garfield was born in Ohio in November of 1831. He worked his way through Williams College, then returned to Ohio, where he became a lawyer and was groomed by local Republicans to enter state Senate. When the war broke out, he was commissioned as a colonel, raised a regiment, and served with distinction, achieving the rank of brigadier general. In 1862, he was elected to the House and served there as a radical Republican, supporter of Reconstruction and hard money man until 1880, when he was elected, but not yet seated, to the U.S. Senate. So a brief rundown there, but what I want to point out is he has basically an identical background as Hayes. Yeah, it's they just the, the general the handsome generals from Ohio. It was it was a pretty uh, consistent product they were putting out there. Yep. Somebody who wore the uniform and fought on the fields to rally the the patriotic sens- sensibilities of northern uh northern voters who were not catholic garfield was then another dark horse candidate for republican nomination 
He was at the convention to support fellow Ohioan Treasury Secretary John Sherman's nomination. The convention was split between the stalwarts supporting uh, U.S. Grant for an unprecedented third term and the anti-spoils men, the half-breeds, who were supporting James G. Blaine, the senator from Maine. The convention was deadlocked between Grant and Blaine until Garfield rose to give the nominating speech for Sherman. And unfortunately for Sherman, Garfield's speech was much better received than Sherman was, and soon delegates began turning to Garfield to break the tie. He was nominated on the 36th ballot, uh, protesting the entire time, which I think is funny. No, don't, no, don't no, elect no, me. No, 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 please, seriously. <laughs> Not me. Seriously. I was here for Sherman. Don't do it. And you know what? He was right. Uh, because the now minority stalwarts still supported Grant, our friend, the New York's customs collector and Conkling ally, Chester A. Arthur, was nominated as vice president to placate them. Garfield would go up against Winfield Scott Hancock, a Union Civil War general from Pennsylvania. Running on largely similar platforms, Republicans attempted one last time to push the only button they had, waving the bloody shirt. Like, come on, guys, remember the war? We still hate the Democrats, right? You don't want to vote for those guys. They were they were shooting at, I don't know, your dad still? I don't know who, who, what the, even people's relationships were. 16 years later. Uh, the vote went down on strict sectional lines, finalizing the solid Democrat South that would carry for generations. And though Garfield won by only 1,898 votes, he carried the Electoral College 214 to 155. 1,898 votes, still the closest popular vote total in U.S. election history. In office, Garfield made overtures toward pursuing black civil rights and equality in the South, mainly by proposing a federal universal education system. But interest in black well-being and equality and indeed interest in continuing to pressure the South for their role in the Civil War had been nearly exhausted in the North, and these initiatives would not make progress during his term. So then, Garfield's main focus would be civil service reform and dismantling the spoils system, which, again, pissed a lot of people off. Specifically, one person. Matt, do you want to fill us in on Charles Guiteau? So Charles Guiteau is a, uh, I guess you'd call him an eccentric fella. Uh, (laughs) He got kicked out uh, of a free love colony for being too weird. Uh, (laughs) And he tried to start a newspaper about uh, the the wonders of uh, free love colonies. Uh, <laughs> that failed. Uh, and then he uh, was a traveling itinerant preacher for a while. Uh, and then, like many uh, people who fail to make things work in regular life, uh, he turned to politics. <laughs> uh, and in 1880, he supported uh, the stalwarts. Uh, supported Grant for the nomination. In his mind, did yeoman's work for the Republican ticket. And then when Grant became president, he became convinced that uh, he owed him a job. And when he didn't get a federal appointment, he decided that uh, Garfield had to pay. And so when he shot Garfield at the Washington uh, train station, the words he said were, I am a stalwart. Arthur is president. <laughs> so this guy literally capped the president over civil service reform. I also I just like the detail because I'd always heard that, oh, he wanted a federal appointment. And, you know, I always imagine, you know, some kind of like head of a tax collecting office somewhere. But he, he was really had his heart set on the consulship to Paris, which sounds like a, a pretty uh, cushy gig if you can get it. Yeah. 
no, he had a very high opinion of his own uh, his own abilities. Uh, and in fact, of fact, he didn't even really kill Garfield, as he pointed out in his own trial. It was the doctors that did that. Uh, yes, it was a run of kind of what we would call malpractice now, but uh, just a hilariously conventional doctoring of the mid 19th century of just uh, sticking your finger in the bullet wound to see if you can get it out of there. Uh, they brought Alexander Graham Bell in to use a uh, newly invented metal detector to see if they could find where the bullet was lodged. Garfield was shot on July 2nd, 1881, and it takes him until September 19th to finally kick it. Yeah. The standards of the time were not great, but he was definitely hindered by the fact that uh, he had a trusted old army buddy installed as the presiding doctor. Uh, and that guy, even for the era was a quack. So <laughs> that should really tell you something. People were telling him, don't, don't do that. What, why are you sticking your fingers in there? Stop it. Why are you pumping whiskey and bullion cubes up his ass? <laughs> he's losing, he's dropping pounds. He's lost 70 pounds. Why are you feeding him rectally? And he's like, I know what I'm doing. And uh, it killed his ass. So Garfield dies a year into his term. And so in one of those funny historic jokes, Chester A. Arthur ascends to the presidency. And it was Arthur, a creature of the spoil system, the head of the New York Customs House, the seat of spoils at the time, who signed the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Bill, granting government appointments based on merit rather than patronage in January 1883. Yes, the guy who only made it through the spoil system, gets into office uh, with the blood of his predecessor, and because of the momentum created by this this sacrifice on the altar of good government, Arthur ends up being noted basically only for ending the very uh, practice, or at least starting the process of ending the practice that had given him power. Because it takes many years for civil service reform to actually uh, infiltrate the government because that structure can't just go away overnight. It ha- its its capacities have to migrate to other uh, structures, and that takes time. But it 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 does go down as the beginning of the end of the spoil system, uh, because uh, Arthur at that point was really just along for the ride. And yes, we see that the the, the personalities of presidents and their actual uh, desires. While they might, you could argue that they have huge causal import during the Civil War and immediately after, during this period, because of the consolidation of corporate control of the parties, uh, sees the personalities totally recede. Uh, the presidency is a vessel for the in, the corporate interests that are stretching railroads across the continent, dominating the Native Americans, uh, creating a tariff system to nurture domestic industry and capitalizing the south along plantation lines to resurrect the uh, agricultural cycle there uh and so all the president really had to do was uh stand around uh and look bearded (laughs) and so i want to end on the tragedy of indian policy during this era the policy of integration with the natives continued from Grant through Hayes and Garfield and Arthur sought to bring the Native Americans into a homogenous citizenship in response to the crisis uh, incurred by expansion and the ongoing Indian wars. They forged the allotment system, enforcing private ownership onto the Native Americans, a system that was then ripe for abuse from speculators and from uh, federal corruption. 
And the great irony was this supposedly liberal policy was pursued by the same men who were in turn abandoning their commitments to the homogenous citizenship of blacks in the South, uh, abandoning them to the restored rule of the Bourbon Democrats. And all of these citizens, the blacks in the South, the newly integrated Indians, the workers of the Northeast, uh, were increasingly subject to the coercive terms of unstoppable conglomerations of capital who were themselves busy constructing a gleaming, gilded cage over the nation. Oh, man, that's great. Is that a good ending? That's a great ending. Awesome. And then we can start um, with, like, the maybe we rewind to, like, the Great Railroad stuff. Hell of Presidents is produced by me, Chris Wade, with our co-editor, Nick Quaz. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, with additional music by Young Chomsky, Stale Cooper, and John Ahrens, whose music you can find at Replican, R-E-P-L-I-C-A-N, dot bandcamp, dot com. Our show art is by Branson Reese. Join us next week as the gang gets gilded.